don't listen to the negativity around you. Um, if someone tells you you can't do it, um, don't believe that, right? Like, keep going. Maybe you can't, but you should find out for yourself. Don't let, don't let anyone discourage you from trying to do something with yourself. This is LA is Good For You, a podcast about the founders and funders who are building LA's most interesting companies. We are your hosts, Susan Kevin. On this week's episode, we'll introduce you to Robert Quadra, who dropped out of high school and went on to found Diamond, a web and application development company working with Fox, Beachbody, and major TV and movie studios in Los Angeles. Here's Robert talking about what it was like growing up in East LA in the 90s. Uh, I grew up in Southeast LA in a little town called Southgate, which is a direct suburb of the city of LA. So what was it like growing up in Southeast LA and what kind of childhood did you have? So it was the the 80s and the early to mid 90s. It was probably, you know, one of the most, I guess, violent eras in the city of LA's history. So it was a little rough. Um, but when you're in it and when you're that age, you don't really, I guess, realize it. It's not until you get older and you start seeing the way other people live and as you actually get out of your town, and I think this applies probably for people from a small town too, is you get out of where, you know, your neighborhood and now everything looks completely different, right? So it was, I mean, I think it was pretty tough. Um, you know, I think my parents did the best they could, uh, both immigrants, both uneducated. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, help, I'm thankful for what they, they were able to do, but yeah, it was, it was a little rough for sure. Therapy helps. <laughs> what what was that kind of normalized behavior that that you see now that you didn't see then? Um, I think just the the amount of violence. Like there was, I mean, a lot of fights, a lot of shootings. Uh, you know, cops on the block every day taking someone away. Wow. Uh, you know, people beating on their wives. You know, a lot of drinking, a lot of drugs. So it was a lot of gang activity. So it was uh, it was definitely rough in those days. How did but, you stay out of it, or did you? Um, I did. Um, it was. It was uh, literally and figuratively a fight to stay out of it because a lot of times, you know, there was recruitment and some people didn't didn't want to stand up to that and they would just go along. And, you know, I was I was willing to get beat up to stay out. Wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah, That's crazy. Um, yeah. What about the riots? Did they affect you in any way? Yeah, yeah. The riots were interesting. I mean, we had when when they went down all our not all our local grocery stores, but. We had like a department store and a grocery store and an auto shop on the corner. That all got burnt down and looted. Um, one of the grocery stores up the street got looted. Uh, that one did reopen eventually. Uh, but yeah, it was, I mean, it was pretty crazy. And I think leading up to that, it was pretty bad. I think afterwards, things started slowly getting better. And I think now that same area, like you have a lot of, where at, where at that time it was a lot of first generation families or immigrants, it's now you have the second and third generations, and a lot of them are homeowners. They're starting to take care of the neighborhoods better, and I think it's a you know it's not perfect, but it's still a lot more livable than it was back then. What was it like going to school at that time? Well, school was <laughs> school was interesting. It was uh, you know one of the one of the main reasons for going to school was the free lunch, like we. Okay. A bunch of us all got um, lunch tickets, so we'd get free breakfast, free lunch. And, you know, as I got older, I would just leave after lunch. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was, you know, the I hear sometimes about schools being overcrowded, and I hear the numbers they're talking about. And I think back to then when we had like 45, 50 kids in one class, 
And you know, if you if you were late on the first day, you wouldn't get a desk. You'd just be standing in the back. There weren't enough books to go around, so it was. Crazy. I mean, it was completely overcrowded. Uh, you know, I back then, like obviously, like the the teachers are kind of your the authority, and they're almost your nemesis, right? Like as a as a shithead teenager, for lack of a better term. <laughs> uh, but looking back on it, I kind of feel bad for them because you know they were trying to do the best they could, and they had limited resources. They had a bunch of, you know angry kids on their hands and they were you know it was tough what did you think you would or did you have a plan for what you would do when you were older? no i didn't really think about it what does a shithead grow up into <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh dead or jail <laughs> wow. so is that kind of what what happened in your neighborhood uh yeah i mean i think um a lot of friends that i have now are friends that i made in high school like a little bit later on uh, a lot of the guys that I grew up with, um, you know, there's probably four or five of us left that aren't in jail or dead. Uh, so, yeah, it's, uh, it's it's definitely it's choices, right? Like everyone makes their choices. And even at that young age, it's like you could you're old enough to know what's good, what's right and what's wrong. And some of us made bad choices. Some of us made good choices. Some of us made bad choices, then good choices. So it was, uh, you know, it's definitely uh, interesting. But it, I mean, I, really at that age, like I didn't really have a direction. It was just kind of day to day. Did you have any dreams, even like outrageous dreams? Uh, when I was a kid, when I was r much younger, I wanted to be an architect. Um, and I think that's that's almost what I ended up being, just not in the way that I thought back then. You know, obviously the internet wasn't around in, uh, well, the internet as we know it wasn't around back in the late 80s, early 90s. Um, what I do now is I build. I look at the requirements, I architect the solution, and we go and build it. So it's it's kind of like that. So I, I, it kind of matched up to my dream. <laughs> so you mentioned to me before that, um, was it in the seventh grade that you sort of gave up the idea of, of yeah. going to college? Why was that? Uh, I think it was just... Uh, by that age, I made the realization that I had a very difficult time doing well in school. Like, I would just stop caring after a while. Like, I'd, I'd start every quarter, every semester, like, ready to go. This time I'm going to do all my homework. I'm going to do everything. And I'd get, like, three weeks into it, and I was like, I don't want to do the homework. I'd, I'd study. I'd do the tests, and I'd always get good grades on the tests, but homework was usually a big part of it, and I just never wanted to do it. Um that and obviously financial resources, like there was no way my parents were going to be able to afford college. Um, so if I wanted to go, it was going to be like community college and I would probably have to work to pay for it. And um, when I actually started working, that was kind of what I wanted to do. It was like, oh, well, I'll, I'll save up a little bit of money and I'll go to community college and then see what happens. But as the Internet industry kept growing and growing, I, at least financially, that need wasn't there anymore. Okay, so let's talk about that, because um, you also told me that you did not finish high school. I did not, yeah. And, um, and then you started working straight away. So what was your first job? My first job was, uh, was a company down in Orange County that was doing um, online police uh, seizure auctions. So they would go out to all these different systems and aggregate all the data and then put all the auction listings on the site and charge people to get access to the auction and what was going to be auctioned off. And now that, you know, you could, every police department's going to have that information on their own. But back then, it was still a lot of, like, subscribing to a small-town newspaper, getting it in the mail, and grabbing the list, then putting it online. How did you end up with that job? 
Um, I just applied for it. I was just looking around. Uh, I had by that time I had taught myself some coding, uh, some very basic like HTML, uh, JavaScript, some Perl, and I just started looking for jobs uh, doing that because I was very interested in it. So let's talk about this police seizure data. I want to know what kind of items you can find. Everything. I mean, you're talking everything from a gold pinky ring to a yacht. Yeah. <laughs> That's incredible. Like, it really depends where it is. So obviously, like LA and Miami, you're talking like really big ticket items. Uh -huh. um, in uh, other places, like more towards the middle of the country, it was a lot of uh, tax seizure. So people that you know didn't pay their taxes, it's like you have a farm or some tractors or things like that uh, up for auction. Did you ever buy anything? No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, how long did you stay there? Uh, I worked there until 2004. Right about there. And uh, then at that point, um, I had been doing some freelance work uh, on the side just to make more money. Uh, then, I, then I went fully freelance at that point. So we've been talking about porn before we started yeah. recording this uh, this as podcast, we as no, we do, just because it appears that um, all of us in why, one way or another worked in porn, yep. either building websites for um, um, adult entertainment companies or doing PR for adult entertainment companies. <laughs> so what is it with porn and technology? It's always at the cutting edge. There's uh, there's so much money in it and there's so much demand for it that they will find new ways to leverage the technology that's emerging and get it out there to people and give them a new way to consume and a new way to, to I guess, charge for something that people want. Did you, like, what was your experience working with adult companies? As, as I've, whenever I talk about having worked with adult companies, I think people project a lot of stereotypes about what it's like to work with these companies and they're like, oh, they're disreputable. Do you, they have problems getting paid and stuff like that? And on the contrary, they've always been the kindest, the nicest yeah. and the most. I think there's there's so many laws around what they do that yeah. they're forced to be very compliant with what they do. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, you're going to have the random cokehead in there, but for the most part, like their, their business operation is run very well. Yes. Yeah. So what happened next? You were working as a freelancer and you ended up with a job on American Idol? Yeah, so I, I was freelancing. Uh, then I went to the porn industry. I uh, was working full time there for a little bit, then went back to freelance. Uh, 2007 is where I ended up at American Idol. Uh, and that's actually where I met my two partners right now. So the the third partner that came up came in, a guy named Jonathan. He actually hired me and my founding partner. Um, at American Idol to do some work there. And out of all the developers there, uh, Joe, who's my founding partner, he was the only one who didn't come from the porn background. <laughs> <laughs> so we were all there, uh, ex-porn people building out this, you know, the this mass marketed American dream type deal. <laughs> so what were you working on? Were you all developers? And yeah, so we what we did is uh, when we got there, it was very uh, a very manual website. There wasn't much video on it, much audio. Um, and we basically built a, uh, a customized CMS from the ground up uh, for the editors, both in the Fox building and on the road to be able to add content, um, upload their videos, edit it, and get the stuff out there as quickly as possible and produce a steady stream of content both during the season and, and during the off season to keep people interested. You must have been very busy. Oh, it was <laughs> there. I mean, there was, there was one day that always sticks out in my mind where it was about a week before the show started. And 
you know, that that's one thing about working with entertainment related is those deadlines don't move, right? Like the that show was going to start on January 11th, whether we were ready or not, right? They're, they're not going to move the deadline for us or the show launch for us. Um, so we were about a week out, which is, you know, right after New Year. And I got to uh, I got to the office about 7 a.m. on a Monday, <laughs> and uh, I saw my on my boss's uh, desk he had a whole box of five hour energy, and I knew like um, I'm not going home anytime yep. soon. <laughs> Ended up working 36 hours straight, nonstop. It was a it was a very smelly office. <laughs> uh, my boss uh, at the time, Jonathan, who's now working with us, uh, he was there probably almost five days straight. But at one point, they put him up at the hotel next door just so he could sleep a little bit. But, you know, those were the types of deadlines and craziness we were dealing with. So how many people were working on the website? Uh, at that time, there were actual developers. There were probably seven of us. So it's not a big team at all. No, not at all. Wow. Well, no wonder you guys had to work 36 yeah. <laughs> hours or five days straight. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but it was, uh, you know, it was definitely a learning experience, especially learning how it, it relates to live TV and, um, you know, on show nights, the way the traffic would spike up. And, you know, every, at that time, at least we were still kind of learning and, you know, you'd get these huge traffic spikes and everything just falls over. And you got to get it all back up and running, which also led to very long nights. But So during that time when you were um, doing all the video freelancing, were there any new technologies that were coming out in, in video? that either you kind of like pioneered or you were, you know, the first one of the first people to use because it's, I mean, it's a long time. And then the video went through such a massive evolution during that time. Yeah. They, I, I, should I, how technical should I get with this? <laughs> we're, we're pretty technical, okay. but yeah, we can dumb it down. So we, uh, you know, it's always been about the codex. Uh, so as the codex come out over time, they get, uh, they get faster, they get better with their compression and the quality gets higher. Um, Working back at the adult industry, we came up with a, an early version of what what now looks like HLS, um, where we had chunked up the streams, secured each one, secured each packet uh, to make sure that people couldn't steal the content. And we did all this from scratch as a team. And now it's like, a, you know, it, it, reading the HLS papers several years later, it was like, oh, we did that five years ago, right? <laughs> so it, it all makes sense, right? Like it, it starts moving over. Um, so having those those cutting edge players that accept these codecs and that work uh, despite of whatever browser it is and being and now these days especially being able to stream things out to multiple devices uh, so a lot of you know a lot of the sites we work on they have web mobile web mm -hmm. iOS Android tablets TVs Xbox PlayStation Roku Fire TV I mean there's so many devices out there now and you have to support all of them because there's some subset of users on them, especially now as more people are cord cutting. Um, so that that's been uh, that's been one of the biggest uh, parts on the on the video side, at least. There was another thing. Um, I went to one of your events and there was a panel on digital rights management. So what's happening with that? Because that just went over my head, yeah. <laughs> even though I'm from the data background. So DRM itself. Um, I was involved in some of that stuff uh, very early on when there were very few options. Um, the, the projects we work on now, that's mostly handled by third parties, so I'm not too familiar with the with the internals of it. But one of the one of the biggest ones is, uh, you know, for rights management is linking it up at least in the TV industry to what your cable subscription is. Uh, so being able to log in with your Direct TV or your Time Warner, whatever it is, account. 
Um, and we, you know, while I was at Fox, we did um, we did the first uh, TV Everywhere site uh, for Speed Network. Uh, I want to say this was like 2010, 2011, um, which was the very, very beginning of what is pretty normal, I think, for most people today. So you're responsible for all my problems with actually logging into <laughs> a, a cable network using my friend's yeah. username and password who's based in a different city. Yeah, you can blame Adobe for that one. They handle most of it. So. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> yeah, it's Adobe's one of those companies too that it's crazy how much they're like embedded everywhere. Like you think of Adobe and you just think graphics and video editing, but yeah. they have so many products that are just all over the enterprise. You can't you can't avoid them basically. <laughs> so, so you were at Fox and uh, doing some really cool work on American Idol, and it sounds like you were working with a couple other great guys. How did you guys decide to build a business together? Uh, so, me and Joe, uh, we were both contractors at American Idol, and we would come in and out uh, for the season. Uh, then we'd go off and go do our freelance thing again once the the season was over and the the contractor headcount got cut, which was you know it was never an issue for us. It was just like that's that's the life of a freelancer, right? Yeah. Um, there was always work too, and you know usually we'd end up go going and doing some startup work, and we would end up working together on various projects or helping each other out here and there. Um, at the end of 2011, beginning of 2012, we were both working uh, with a startup. Uh, went belly up, uh, basically from one day to the other. <laughs> if I recall correctly, uh, the guy was going through a pretty messy divorce and needed the money. <laughs> wow. So uh, we we find ourselves without a job, and you know we were we met one day at uh, at CPK here down in the marina, sitting there having lunch and talking about like you know what are you going to do next? And he was going to go back to Fox Broadcasting. I was going to go to Fox Sports and try to you know, pull out some uh, some contracting hours. And we thought, hey, why not go in as a vendor? Uh, so we called some of our contacts. And the very first project we got was uh, was re-architecting and rebuilding the back end for Fox.com. So, <laughs> just a tiny project. Yeah. <laughs> just, just a little one. <laughs> Which we still work on to this day. But it's it's gone through like four iterations by now. Uh, but yeah, that's that was our first project. That's how we got started. And, you know, we uh, we got it so fast that we didn't even have time to set up a company, set up a structure, do any of that. We, uh, you know, my my partner, um, his family was in the diamond business and he had a, a kind of just a corporation sitting on the side that he would do uh, some business here and there with called uh, Diamond Web Services. Uh, and because he had that ready, that's what we went with and that's how we got our name. <laughs> so there was no branding exercise or anything like that. It was kind of a a reactionary thing to, oh, shit, we better do this because we're going to lose the opportunity. And that's where we ended up. Yeah. And I still remember also going to, uh, you know, going to see a bookkeeper and uh, again, like figuring out like, well, who's what are the titles? Like, who's going to be what? And she's like, I need a I need a president and a and a secretary. She's like, that's all I need. So we flipped the coin. I got <laughs> we literally flipped the coin in the, the accountant's office. I got president. He got secretary. <laughs> So, yeah, it was, uh, you know, it was very, I mean, you don't get more bootstrapped than that. <laughs> Absolutely. So how did you, how did you do that first project? It sounds like it's, you know, the two of you yeah. and you know, a lot of like duct tape and yeah, so, a huge project. So it was the two of us. And at that time we were both still uh, very actively uh, programming. Yeah. Um, so 
you know, we, we co-architected the entire infrastructure. Uh, we hired a couple freelancers. We hired, we hired our first employee. Um, and uh, those guys are still with us to this day. Um, so, you know, we, we got it done. At, at the end of the day, we got it done. And, you know, going back to what I was talking about, the idle days and, you know, the crazy nights and long hours and all that stuff, you know, we, as developers, we built the company from day one with the thought that we don't want to do that anymore. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it's, <laughs> it's, uh, it's it's very core to it's a very core value to us that our employees have a, a very clear separation between work and life and uh, one of those things is avoiding the long hours and making sure we're not working weekends because the way I see it if if we're doing that that means that management is failing that we're not we're not planning properly we're not estimating properly and that should not happen on a constant basis. So how quickly the company did the company grow? So we went from. From zero to about a dozen pretty fast, I would say probably in the first year, uh, we had a, we were up to the 12 employees. Um, we started having a, you know, it, it was very easy to hire other developers, right? Because we know this stuff. Um, when we started having to hire for other roles, like for help with around the office, for HR help, for help recruiting, for the business side, because, uh, you know, to this day, we're still making mistakes and still learning on the business side. And I don't think that'll ever stop, but... It's all about like, you know, having the right people that you can talk to about it. Um, you know, it, when it when it came to hiring those non-technical roles, I think that's where we've definitely had uh, the biggest challenges. Um, and yeah, we, you know, we grew it to about a dozen. Uh, then the second year we grew even more, probably too fast, had a bit of a contraction. Uh, you know, things kind of, <laughs> we were on the high peak and then hit the valley. <laughs> was it a demand problem? or? Uh, it, it was It was partially um, projects ending. And then us, um, I'm trying to find the best way to put this. I, we held on for resources too long, right? Because we didn't, we thought we could write it out, having people on the bench because oh, we'll find something for them, we'll find something for them. And, you know, suddenly... You know, your developers aren't cheap yeah. and you're paying a lot of money for these people that are not able to bill anything. Uh, so then it starts coming out of your pocket and then <laughs> that makes you very unhappy every morning when you wake up. So it's it, it was definitely a struggle. And, you know, we we definitely learned from that as well um, to get our, you know, to this day, we keep our utilization very, very high. Uh, usually anytime that we we bring someone in, whether on the financial side or or, you know, just looking at the business side, um, you know, they're pretty surprised at how high our utilization is. That brings other problems too, though, because when we get a new project, it's very difficult to onboard quickly. Like we usually need a little bit of lead time so we could find the resources or allocate someone off of one project and onto a new project. But it's it, it makes it easier in terms of managing the finances. Did you have any specific recruitment philosophy? Or was it more like, no dicks, um, I want to hire people that I could go for a beer with? Yeah. That that's it, I, and I think even now the personality is the biggest thing because the the hardest part about hiring and definitely not unique to us is you you know even if you have the most in depth hiring process with a bunch of steps that nobody wants to go through, you're gonna have most spent five hours with somebody before you're offering them a six figure job and basically inviting them into your house. Uh, so sometimes that works out well, sometimes it doesn't, uh, you know, and as time goes on, we've gotten better at, uh, at screening out the, the potential issues. But, but yeah, the personality is a huge thing, which is why we also have any candidate for any role speak to multiple people on the team. And I think get it, everybody's take is, uh, is very important because, uh, you know, an individual can't catch everything. So speaking of multiple personalities, 
how do you, since you have multiple co-founders, how do you guys all come to decisions about what you're going to do next? And um, it's pretty unanimous. I shouldn't say pretty. It, it's unanimous. So it's uh, if one of us disagrees, we don't do it. Wow. Yeah. Does that, how does it work? It works pretty well, actually, because I think we we all have a pretty clear picture of, you know, what the what the goals for the company are and what, and based on those goals, that helps guide us to the proper decisions. Um, they're... And the decisions are usually around hiring, resourcing, and allocating of budgets, right? Um, so we, it, it's pretty easy to make cases for those types of things because you can back it up with numbers. Um, there's not a lot of, I guess, uh, subjective things that we need to argue about. So you went from two people now to, was it 35, 40 full-time and the rest um, are freelancers? And you work with, and this is from your website, Fox and Beachbody and all the ones that you mentioned to me and uh, you can't talk about. So there's a company that's got something to do with football. There's another one that's got something to do with animated <laughs> cartoons. Yeah. Uh, so what's your secret? Why do people come and want to work with you? So I, I really think it's just reputation and network. Um, we've been, me and my founders and, and now people that work for us to a certain degree, uh, we've been doing this for a while, and that's kept the network strong, and that's kept our reputation strong, and I think the same goes for my partners. And because of that, people trust us to take on these big projects that someone who didn't know us might not. We've done zero advertising ever. Um, it's all word of mouth, and, you know, the again, just the strength of the network and keeping people happy and getting the projects done right on time, on budget, I think is has been what's, what's allowed us to... Uh, to grow and continue to thrive. So you never needed a small team of salespeople getting on the phones and. No, we we'd like that. <laughs> we just, but but going back to what I was talking about earlier, hiring for the non-technical roles, like we'd love to build a sales team because we feel like our services are needed by many many companies. But I have no idea how to build a sales organization, and there's been a couple times now that we've tried it with some people, and the results just weren't there right and it's also because what we sell or what we do is we're essentially selling services and not a product mm -hmm. and it's very very technical um so someone that can sell a product very easily might not necessarily be able to sell this service as well so do you think that you would grow more if you had a, a sales organization and you could you could implement it and yeah know? yeah and we're working on that Right now, yeah, we're trying to get that sales organization. That's going. that's super exciting. Yeah, it is, and scary. <laughs> Where am I going to find all the people to work on this? <laughs> you also co-founded um, TV4 Entertainment. Yes. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Uh, so TV4 was uh, the the guy who came up with it is a guy John Cody who I used to work under at Fox. He was the EVP there at uh, Fox Digital Media. He was the launch GM for Hulu, got that up and running, had a background working at the FCC. Um, he viewed uh, television as being in its fourth generation. So the first generation was, uh, you know, analog, bunny ears. Uh, you know, you had three or four channels. Uh, second generation was cable. In the 80s, you know, now you have 40 channels. Uh, third generation was satellite. You got a couple hundred channels now. And the fourth generation is OTT, over-the-top online video where you have no end in sight of how many channels you can get, right? Or networks or streaming or anything like that. Uh, so 
he he saw this coming, I think, uh, pretty far ahead and had the idea of coming up with this company, TV4, which is working as a, as a studio type of model for, uh, for online video. Um, so it has a production arm, it has a licensing arm, it has a music arm, uh, as well as a production. Did I say production already? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So production and distribution as well. Uh, so really trying to modernize studio operations out in a low cost way that's still as effective as any of the big studios. Is this one of the things that, you know, been talked about a, a lot in, in terms of convergence between Hollywood and Silicon Valley and all technology. Is this like one of the things that is happening that people are trying to redefine what studios look like? Yeah, I think so. And I think uh, you see uh, Maker doing that. Uh, YouTube's obviously done that uh, to on a much larger scale, um, full screen. I mean, there's a, there's a bunch of these out there now. So what's the next big thing that's going to come out in VR and TV? <laughs> we want to know. Uh, I think there's there's been so there's always been this dream of the second screen, right? Or that that additional physical experience in your home on your couch that complements what you're watching on the screen. Um, I I think there's been several attempts at, at that with companion apps that listen to what's on the TV to try to sync up. Um, I think that's still the the holy grail. And I think as we start getting more into an AR world, uh, VR, I, I'm not so big on AR. I'm very big on, I think uh, AR will enable some of those true uh, second screen. Well, it won't even be a second screen at that point, but a truly immersive experience for just consuming content. And I think that's the that's really the next big thing. Is that what all the brands are coming to you asking for? Not yet, but I think... Five years from now, wow. it's probably going to be all over the place. It's going to be a whole different setup. In whole, yeah, completely different landscape. I think the the biggest thing limiting that right now is just the hardware itself. Uh, you know, you people like us might try try getting an Oculus or you know getting a you know one of these uh, magic leaps right for a couple thousand dollars, but my mom's not going to buy that, no, right? No. <laughs> my uncle's not going to buy that. My nephew's not going to buy that. So. Uh, I think uh, PlayStation came out with the with a VR headset as well, and that's increasing adoption. And I think as people get used to consuming content a certain way, the uh, the form factors for the hardware are going to get more consumer friendly and more mass market friendly, and it'll just continue to grow. So um, LA, that at least to me, has always been synonymous with with entertainment. And you lived here all your life, and mm-hmm. during your lifetime, do you think it's changed? Is it less entertainment now, more? Entertainment and technology and something else, or is it converging? I think uh, I think entertainment and technology are probably the the leaders. Uh, entertainment, I think, is always going to be a huge part. What's dropped for sure is production, um, but still the the studios themselves are still owned and operated here in LA. Um, the technology, obviously, we've we've all seen it and we've all experienced it here on the West Side, especially you know just the way it's exploded even in the last five years. Um, I think that's gonna gonna be a, a continuing growth sector for the for the area. I think sports are are getting much bigger here in LA, especially with uh, getting the two football teams back. Uh, you know, we've got two football teams, two soccer teams, two basketball teams, one and a half baseball teams. I, I count the Angels as half because they're too far away, <laughs> and they're all good. And I think um, as the sports industry just keeps exploding here, it's gonna they're going to start tapping into the entertainment and the technology as well. And I think, uh, you know, LAFC, the new soccer team that 
just started. They were sponsored by YouTube. Uh, so all their matches are on, oh, wow. well, I forgot what YouTube's uh, offering is. I think it's YouTube Red or, yeah. no, YouTube TV. Oh, yeah, so they're streaming all the games there. So I think you start seeing that uh, that kind of crossover between the industries uh, a lot and a lot more. Okay, one last thing. Give to advice, unless you've got any other questions. Well, I'm curious because you have this hornblower thing and I don't know anything about it. Okay. So <laughs> Tell me everything. <laughs> uh, we do, uh, and by we, I mean mostly my partner, Joe, because he's the guy that's been putting on events forever and doing a very good job at it. Um, we put on an event called CTO Mixers, um, where we bring uh, CTOs and other uh, disciplines from mainly the entertainment industry, but we also spread out into others. We all get on a booze cruise in the marina and cruise around for a couple hours and, uh, you know, have panels on a variety of topics. So, uh, you know, the the last one that Suze was at, it was, um, you know, the OTT landscape and what's changing there. The uh, the one before that, um, we had uh, Dr. Gupta from formerly of JPL and I think now it's SpaceX, who's literally a rocket scientist. And she like... Uh, engineered the parachute for the Mars rover, you know, back in, in the late 90s. You know, one of the most intelligent people you ever meet in your life, but also one of the most personable and very engaging speaker. Um, so, yeah, we, you know, we spread it around across a variety of topics, and it's a, it's a really good event. Are these recorded? Um, I think we do record them, yeah. I don't know if we're actually distributing them. The, the JPL one, yeah, yeah, the JPL one would be cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, Robert... You are an unlikely entrepreneur, would you say? Yeah. Pretty much. What kind of advice would you give it to, to kids who are, you know, struggling at school? They don't want to do their their homework, um, but they want to, you know, they want to make something out of themselves. They they want to be entrepreneurs. They, they aspire to be somebody. Mm -hmm. I would say the biggest thing is... Um, don't listen to the negativity around you. Um, if someone tells you you can't do it, um, don't believe that, right? Like, keep going. Maybe you can't, but you should find out for yourself. Don't let don't let anyone discourage you from trying to do something with yourself because they will try. It's like, a, you know, there's a, from watching Deadly Scatchers, like the whole thing of the, the pot of crabs, right? Like if one of them tries to get out, the other ones will rip them to shreds trying to keep them in. And people are like that too, I found in my life. Um, so yeah, don't don't listen to the to the people that are going to try to keep you down like that. You know, get out. That's our show for this week. If you enjoyed it, make sure to subscribe on iTunes. And while you're there, add a review to let us know what you think. You can also find us at laisgoodforyou.com. See you next week. <laughs>